My name is Jack. I am Bethany Northeast lead pastor. Good to see a few new faces and as always, uh, familiar friends. Oslins are back. No. These are, good life, these are lifelong friends. So I just, I, whenever I see Aaron, he travels. So I just go, yes, you're here. I'm glad you're in town. So let me take a moment to pray. We're in Song of Solomon chapter 6, uh, kind of coming down the home stretch. So we have just have a couple more weeks in this series, and then we're going to start into our summer series, which is going to be in, they're calling it summer shorts. So like J.J. Vansel's wearing shorts. Everybody can wear shorts to church this summer because we're, we're looking at little prophets like, you know, Jonah and those, and then little letters in the New Testament. Summer shorts, put them. So, <laughs> so those that are new here, are like this is lame. Let's go now. Kidding. So, um, let's take a moment to pray, and we'll dive into Song of Solomon six. God, thank you for uh, the chance we do now have to enter into your word together. Uh, thanks that uh, this word revealed to us from uh, Song of Solomon speaks today to our lives. We. We want to claim that promise. God, it feels distant at times. There feels like a huge chasm between um, words like this, that there's so much nuance and so many metaphors, a huge chasm between that and then even our lives today. So God, we do invite your spirit to fill this word, uh, bring meaning to our hearts and our lives, our relationships, um, our church, our gathering here today. And just equip us, God, for the work you have for us. Many of us as professionals or as full-time parents or students, we're, we're here today, God, seeking a next step from you so that as we head back out into the week next week, uh, we'd be able to do that with deeper faith and greater courage. So that end, God, we, we thank you for this opportunity we have again to seek your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Um, so I learned a new work, word this week, and the word is, I don't know if you know this word, is the, the word is belongingness. Anybody know this word? It's an actual word, belongingness. Uh, it's, it's a noun. <laughs> Seems like a made-up word, but it's actually a theory. Uh, it was developed by this guy named Roy Baumeister and then this other guy named Mark Leary. They're psychologists who back in 1995 published a paper um, that, on the innate human need to belong. And so whether their argument was whether that need is to belong to a family or have friends or with your coworkers or to a religious community or maybe you're a Sounders fan or whatever you are, we have a, a need, an inherent need to belong and to be an important part of something greater than just ourselves. And, and what made the research so groundbreaking, because that may not seem like groundbreaking, like duh, we all have, like we all feel this, Right? Uh, it, it made their research unique, or the, what distinguished it is, they, they said that belongingness is a, is a need, not just a desire. Do you hear that? So they argued this, that, that it's in our very nature from birth all the way to death to push to form relationships. We push to form relationships. So we must have relationships, they would say, in order to survive. They're not just icing on a cake. They're not just like strawberries in spring, like you just get those and then they go away and it's kale the rest of the year. Uh, they're saying that life wouldn't just be flavorless without relationships, it would be impossible for us. And so more recently, Brene Brown, I, you know, I've, I just heard about these guys, but Brene Brown, I've quoted her a few times in the last few weeks even, uh, you, and you, I love her. Uh, she's talked about this idea the past several years. So you probably, who, how many of you have kind of read 
some Brene Brown, or you've seen her TED, okay, a few of you. She, just in case you haven't, she's a social scientist. She has a MSW. She's a sociologist, and she has three PhDs. I don't even, like, I don't even know what you do with one. So, I, you know, some of you have one. It's like, that's cool. And she has three. So that's, I don't even know. But the point, point is that she's really brilliant. And she has this wildly popular TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability. It has 30 million views, over 30 million views. Um, that's the fourth most watched TED Talk of all time. And it's all about what you expect is vulnerability. But she shares in this TED Talk that she did 10 years of research. She'd gone on this kind of quest to discover what was the core need of every human being. So it didn't matter uh, whether you're a believer or non-believer. It didn't matter kind of your religious background or if you're male or female or black, white, Latino, Asian, or if you're Gen X or Boomer or Millennial. It just, it just doesn't matter. She was looking at sort of the broadest... Uh, kind of spectrum of humanity, and she was interested in knowing what was the one thing that unified all people. And she said that after 10 years of research, the universal, she said the universal human need is the need for connection. And so in her own words, she says that we are neurobiologically wired for connection. That's her, her language. And then she goes on in the talk, she says the greatest fear in the world is not the fear of death. Most of us would say that's probably the greatest fear people have is the fear of death. She says the, the greatest fear is actually the fear of disconnection, of that we're not going to fit in somewhere, that, that there's something about me, if other people knew it or saw it, that I just wouldn't be worthy of connection. I'd be rejected. That's the language of belongingness, right? Just kind of put in our 21st century. Uh, now, I'll give you a great illustration of this for the church and for the culture in which we live. Uh, Francis Chan, he's a pastor in the Bay Area. Anybody know who Francis Chan is? Uh, he said that, you know, I watched this talk by him once. He said that there's this guy who once came to his church, and uh, he'd been part of a gang, and he decided to get baptized and kind of leave that behind. And then after a while, this, this young guy stopped coming to the church gatherings. And so Chan went after him and found him and went to his neighborhood and sat down with him and said, where have you been? Uh, and you know what this young guy said? Here's what he said. When I got baptized, you see, I thought it was going to be like when I got jumped into the gang. Uh, you see, when I got jumped in my gang, everyone in my gang had my back, 24-7, 365. It was family. And then he said, so when I got baptized, you know, I thought, you were telling me stories from Jesus' life, you know, in the church in Acts. You were telling me that thing from Acts 2.44 that the, that the church had everything in common. They were together. And I just thought, that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen with the Christians now, just without all the violence and the power play and the fear. And I, he's, he, then he goes on, he says, I just didn't know that it was going to be only Sunday mornings and then some Wednesday nights. So I, th- I thought it was going to be family. I, I guess I just kind of got it wrong. So do you hear this? <laughs> Young boys join dangerous gangs. They're willing to step into very, very uh, dangerous situations just to feel like they're part of something uh, because they have this deep inner need to connect. Um, they need to belong. And it's not a desire, it's a, it's, it's a need to be part of a family, and, and, and they, do, they do anything they can to, be, to meet that need. It doesn't matter how dangerous or dysfunctional or abusive that community might be. And not just boys. Girls do this. Uh, men, women do this. The elderly do this. People at the peak of their kind of careers do this. The stay-at-home moms do this. Single married. It doesn't matter who you are. We all have this need, and, and when that need's not being met, we find other ways to meet that need. You know, it could be through food. Could be through alcohol. Could be through illicit sex. You know, this is the 
the growing epidemic of serial monogamy right now. It's a thing because people have a need to connect, or for young for men, pornography, a need to connect vicariously, uh, or perhaps it's through living out relationship fantasies in other less nefarious ways. So we're always checking our social feeds, uh, and you know why do you think they call it a feed? I don't know. Maybe you could tell me, Nate. I don't know why they call it a feed, but it seems to me because we're we're literally we need something, the fear of missing out, it's interesting that that's now an acronym for us. Uh, certainly, reality programs fill this need for some of us. You know, we live vicariously, though unconsciously, through the lives of other people. Either saying, like I said a couple weeks ago, well, thank goodness I'm not like them, or, oh, man, I wish my life was more like that. And by the way, as I said earlier, this is a word for the church, not just the culture we're kind of swimming in. This is why Francis Chan's story is so powerful for me as a pastor. Sometimes, we're not really a place, and by we, I'm just, I'm not pointing a finger at Bethany specifically or any other church around the corner, uh, but it's a word for us. We're not really a place in which uh, people feel like they belong. We're a place people go. I go to church. How many of you said that? I've said that. I probably said it this week. I go to church. Uh, we're an event. We're a thing you attend and then you leave. <laughs> you know, a box we kind of check. And that ouch, right, as a leader of a church, that's a hard thing to hear and stomach. So this is a bit of a downer. Welcome to church. Uh, what does it have to do with Song of Solomon? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, so Song of Solomon 6, verse 3, this is what the woman says to the man. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. It's this familiar refrain, not only in the Song of Solomon, but all throughout the Bible. So if you look at just the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Ruth. Uh, remember what Ruth, Ruth says to Naomi, her mother-in-law. They've lost their husbands to a famine. Uh, she's a foreigner. She's, her Naomi's going back to Israel to settle down. Both as widows are no longer worthy of connection in that society. Could never be remarried. Bottom of the heap. What does Ruth say to Naomi? Where you go, I go. Your people, my people. What is that? That's the... That's like the click track or something. I'll let Andrew turn that off. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Ice, ice, baby. Uh, my, my nickname back in Pennsylvania was Vanilla Brace, and so there you go. Uh, I'm not kidding. My doppelganger is some rapper from Allentown, Pennsylvania. He did that high school, like, it's like high school. What's his name? Um, it's like college. What's that guy's name? Anyway. So, it's like church. So Ruth, Ruth says, where you go, I go. Uh, your people, my people. Your God, my God. That's belonging this language. I belong to you, Naomi. You go on in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, uh, in, in chapter 7, verse, and then chapter 11, God declares the people of God, obey me, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. There's a connection there, belonging. And that, that refrain is actually repeated verbatim in Isaiah, Kings, Leviticus, Psalms, Deuteronomy. I mean, just all throughout the Old Testament, belonging in this language. Going to the New Testament, in Jesus' final prayer for his disciples, John 17, do you remember what Jesus prays? This is the last thing, one of the last things off Jesus um, through his lips. He's praying to the Father, all I have is yours, all you have is mine, belongingness. And because of that deep connection that we have, I pray you protect the church by the power of your name, the name you gave me, 
give it to them so that just as you and I are one, they'd be one. Belongingness. It's a need that God has for us. It's the language that God gives us throughout the story of God to, to, to find meaning in our lives. And so because of that, today what I want to do with you is just explore this need and this, the, the power behind it for our lives. And we're gonna, I'm going to really pare it down. It, in the bulletin, it lists two things. We're going to just look at one this morning, okay? Part of that's because I've been going a little long, so trying to tighten it up. Uh, and and this, this one thing I want to look at with you this morning is this idea. Belongingness establishes us in our identity. I want to look at how belongingness establishes us, okay? Because that if we don't understand the power behind this connection that we have with God and with each other, nothing else really matters, okay? So this is in verses 4 to 9 where it's really shaped out for us, this part of this passage that Alicia read for us. Um, I'll read a couple of the verses just to kind of start us over. I don't normally bring paper, but this, the voice that we read from is, is an online translation. I love it. So I, a bunch of different translations. I would encourage you in your own devotion times just to find other ways to read Scripture because there's so many different ones out there. But here's what the voice says again. Verse 4, the man says to the woman, you're beautiful, as beautiful as, as Terzah, as lovely as Jerusalem, as regal as an army beneath her, their banners. And then, and then he says, turn your eyes from me because they overpower me always. Your hair moves as gracefully as a flock of goats. And this is all affirmation language. I know for like guys, you're like, oh, I'm not going to say that to my wife. Uh, but leaping down the slopes of Mount Gilead, your teeth are pearl white like a flock of sheep. Each is perfect and paired. I know it's <laughs> like, this is hilarious. Your cheeks are rosy and round beneath your veil. And then he goes on. And, and the man and the woman, if you read through the whole story of Song of Solomon, if you haven't been here every week, they're always speaking this way to each other. It's, just, it's, this, it's very erotic. There's a lot of kind of subtleties here. Uh, but what they're doing by way of affirmation and adoration is they're trying to establish each other in their own sense of identity. They're, they're helping to create a framework or an environment for safety and security and freedom. So let me give you a couple ways that would help us understand what they're actually trying to do using all these kind of metaphors. Uh, one way is a, fr- a friend described this to me this week, and I thought it was really helpful. He says, really, they're creating like a setting. So some of you have diamond rings. I don't have a diamond ring here. But if you have a diamond ring, you can look at it. Uh, and and what, what the jeweler did is it set the, he or she set that diamond into that, that metal. don't know much about jewelry, but this is what the friend explains to me. And they create this unique setting for that diamond to hold it securely, to uh, create a place where that's positioned and which allows it to be seen as a thing of beauty, but also a powerful symbol in our society, a powerful symbol of belonging. So that's one, one way of kind of looking at it. what they're doing is creating a setting for each other to live in relationship where there's, where there's not just beauty, but also a bel- sense of belonging, okay? Here's another uh, example I once heard. It's through this metaphor of an angled mirror. So some of you are like, what? What's an angled mirror? I once heard um, theologian N.T. Wright talk about this idea of an angled mirror, and here's what he said. He was recalling a time when he was a boy and he was confined to his bed. He was sick as a young boy, severe illness. So he said his mom lined up an angled mirror on the door of his room. So like if you can imagine laying in bed and there's the door and there's a mirror on the door, okay? And, and so he could see her down the hallway, you can just imagine this, in the kitchen or maybe other family members in the house, and, and, and coming and going, and she could see him if he's asleep. She doesn't have to always come in to check him. Uh, if he's asleep, he's resting, agitated, lonely. And in that way, this angled mirror 
created a context where he, right, didn't feel isolated and alone. His mom didn't feel anxious and worried and upset. So I'm my beloved's. My beloved is mine. It's like this angled mirror. It's like it creates this context for belongingness to happen. In other words, there's a, there, the point of the angle mirror is that you, don't, it, you can look in both directions. It's not unidirectional. And critically, you're not looking at yourself. You're seeing the other, which is, and here's the deal. We don't see yourself in an angle mirror. And in our 21st century culture, uh, that, that's the opposite of the way we look at ourselves. In, our, in 21st century, uh, this is like narcissism epidemic, self-focus, self-loathing, self-hatred, uh, where I look at my, the mirror of my life and everything that happens in my life, whether it's a slight or a success, a failure, a certain positive, negative, doesn't matter. It's about me, right? It's a reflection on me. So I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I was in a bike accident a few weeks ago, uh, and I caused the accident, and it was a serious accident. Uh, I had a concussion and some pretty major road rash. <laughs> Elise and Ben know this because I came to their wedding and it looked like I got in a bar fight. And their dad's like, whoa. <laughs> so, and I, had, I was concussed. I had it that same day. So it was a little, was I pretty groggy or a little out of it? Yeah. And I didn't have any drinks. Yeah, it's okay, we, but we're not going to do a redo. It's okay. Um, you guys said your vows, exchanged rings, and we're good. I was, I was the better of the two. So a friend, a friend of a few of my friends here who I was riding with, uh, who I caused the accident with, broke his hip. And uh, he had to go to the hospital, uh, pins in it, it's pretty gnarly, off his feet. And I'll just tell you, took a couple weeks, and like Tim and Austin, good friends of mine, but this is a good friend of theirs, kept telling me like, you're thinking way more about this than this friend. Like, you're taking it too hard. I, and it was sort of this self-loathing, like I was making it all about me. And kind of this self-hatred was piling up on me. And looking at the mirror of my life and whatever happens, I just go, man, I'm just, I'm a failure. You know, I should never be on my bike again. I should never, I'm just an accident waiting to happen. Uh, and so this, this relationship in Song of Solomon, because either of them could feel this way in relationship to each other, because of whatever happens, it creates this refracting space so you're not looking at yourself all the time. Uh, but you're acting as a mirror to the other, helping to create a setting of belonging, connection, and, and saying, th- saying things to each other because of what you see in the other, critically, uh, giving freedom and, and a sense that you're not alone, solidness. Is this making sense to you a little bit? And so uh, this is what, getting into the text, what he sees when he looks in the mirror, what he says about her. Verse 4, she's like two amazing cities. Jerusalem, which is spoken of all throughout the Old Testament, Many times as, as the city of God, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine saying something like that to your significant other or your kids? You were like the, the city of God. I don't know how we put it in our, our culture. Like, you're like New York City. No, I don't know. Uh, and like Terzah, which is a capital under the reign of Jeroboam, which isn't a thing you'd normally want to be, but whose name was, the name of Terzah means literally pleasing. You're pleasing. So he's saying, I see a new power. I see in you beauty. I see in you uh, awe-inspiring design. God designed something beautiful and strong. I see holiness. Jerusalem's a city of holiness. Do you ever say that to people? Around? I see holiness, God's imprint of holiness on your life. And then he also, verse 8 says, I see 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins beyond number, but 
my dove, my perfect one is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite one of the one who bore her. I see uniqueness. I see singularity. I see flawlessness. Someone on whom God's favor and delight is resting today. Have you ever said that to somebody? I see God's delight in your life. And as I thought about this all week, it really made me think of a time in the story of God. I kind of talked about this last week at the very end of our series, our sermon. Uh, this similar word spoken of, of one over another. This is the story of Jesus being baptized. And it's kind of like an angled mirror of his own life. Uh, do you remember what happened in his baptism? I mean, you've, probably all, you've all probably heard this story a few times in your life. Like, he's about to be baptized by his cousin John. And if you read the story in its context, the Spirit's descent on the waters of Jesus' baptism is there for a couple reasons. One, to p- fill him with power. He's going to need power to face, at the very next moment, 40 days of testing from the enemy. He's going to need power to do that. He's going to need power to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to need power to confront the, the principalities of, of Rome. He's going to need power to speak truth to the Pharisees and the disciples. He's going to need lots of power. But he also, the Spirit is there to fill Jesus uh, with, with a sense of who he was. See, we, I think we think Jesus is sometimes fully God, fully man, just a carbon copy. Like he's just born into this body. He knows everything about who he is. Why does God need to declare anything over him as far as identity goes then? Why does God need to take a moment before Jesus does anything in his life, in his public ministry, to say, you are? That's an identity statement. What does Jesus need that he's not, if, if not to know who he is? And this is what God says, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. It's very much like Song of Solomon 6. I, I delight in you. And notice he doesn't say, this is my son. I'm presenting my son to you. <laughs> Instead, it says, you are my son. God is speaking right to Jesus here. It's a really important moment. Jesus is hearing this word in his own being. It's innermost, it's inward dialogue with God. It doesn't come down as this abstraction. It's not like this mystical jolt, you know. It's not a lightning bolt from heaven. It's God speaking to his heart. Clear interpersonal communication of identity. So do you know what identity is? Have you thought about this at all? Like literally what identity means we talk about it a lot. And I looked it up, and the word literally means identical. And we don't often think of that in that way. We think of uniqueness when we think of identity. My identity is unique. And, and, and really, it means identical. You, the, there's part of you. Uh, it's from this Latin word, idem, same. It means the quality of being identical. It's whatever part of you is always the same. Now, there is a uniqueness to that, but it's something that goes with you everywhere, no matter the circumstance. So, I have a lot of roles in my life, which oftentimes become my identity. So, I'm, for example, a son. I've got two parents. I'm a son. That's a role. It's not my identity. I'm also a husband. That's a role. I took that role on at one point in my life. Uh, I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a friend. At points, I've identified myself as a swimmer when I was in college. Today, it's a cyclist. That's a role. In my Myers-Briggs, I'm an extrovert. That's a role. That's not my identity. And, and the reason is because, uh, the reason there are roles is, what if I get paralyzed? What if the accident had changed my ability to walk? I wouldn't be a cyclist. Does that make sense to you? What if uh, I lose my parents, you know? I have aging parents. They're both sick. My role as their son changes. I'm still a son, but it changes. Different role. 
You lose a spouse, you lose a child, you go through a horror, the horror of divorce. Your role changes. Uh, you face addiction, a diagnosis. Uh, you know, in my case, as an extrovert. I, I get around, do you know this? As I get around a room of extroverts, guess where I go? Introverted. <laughs> I go inward. How's that? I'm like, got two personalities almost. It's a role, that's why. Uh, it's just something that's not identical about me always in every circumstance. Here's the key. The Bible teaches that there is something about each of you in this room, about me, that's identical in every situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter the people there, and that you need to know that something. This is why God speaks this word over Jesus and why this man speaks this word over this woman. There's something about you that you need to know. I'm going to reflect that to you. And it's something about your innermost value and worth. Whatever, whatever is going on in your life, whatever the trajectory of your career whatever the relationship with your parents or your ability as a parent, is how that's going, whatever your health, whatever it is, whether that's lost or that's on the upswing, whether you're in crisis, it doesn't matter. Your identity is what's always identical, okay? It's always there. It's always true. It's a sense of who you are, okay? Not what you're just doing. So let me ask you, what is your identity? Have you ever thought about that? Just reflected on taking a moment to say, who am I really? At, the, at my core, and if, if you have, how, I mean, how, how would you respond to that question? Really? Like, man on the street, who are you? Not what do you do, not what's your name that your parents give, but who are you in your core? The Bible wants you to know that because that determines almost everything you do. So I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark this year, and I, I made it a goal to read it slowly, to not get through it until December 31st of 2017. That's hard. I've been doing that, and I'm doing pretty well because I'm still in chapter 1, so there's that. So I'm just going to read through chapter 1 until like December 20, 29th, and then <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, I was in chapter 1 earlier this year, obviously. I was in the story of Jesus' baptism and that encounter he had with God where God declares over him his belovedness. And I actually learned something in that moment of just sitting deeply in this word. I usually gloss over it, just the baptism, let's get on with the ministry, right? The word beloved that God speaks over Jesus is this uh, Greek word agapetos. Uh, and it's, it's, it literally means one greatly loved by God and by mankind. It's the same word that's used of this man in Song of Solomon in the Greek Old Testament, which is called the um, Septuagint. Same word. We'll get back to that. Okay? But he's, he's called the agapetos, one greatly loved by God and by humanity. And it's derived from the Greek word, Greek verb to love, agape. And you've probably heard of that word, agape, God's love for us. I also learned that it can be a noun. In this sense, it is a noun. And it's, it's used primarily to describe people or individuals, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, Israel, Israel, in their relationship to who God is. So, for example, Deuteronomy 33, 12, God says this amazing thing about Benjamin. Do you guys know who Benjamin is? He's the youngest sibling of, of Joseph. And he's the one who stays home. You know, all the other brothers go out and try and kill him. <laughs> Benjamin's at home. And this is what God says of Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him. For he shields him all day long. And the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Beautiful identity statement. Remember what Joseph, when he's with his brothers back in Egypt, he says, well, how's Benjamin doing? The beloved of the Lord, resting securely. Belovedness is protection and safety and security. Okay? 
it also is this assurance of rest. So in Psalm 127 too, it says that God grants sleep to those he loves, agapetos, those he loves. He grants you rest. He wants you to feel at rest. Cease your striving is what God's saying. That's a, that's a gift. It's also uh, the way that uh, God continued, uh, shows his continued faithfulness, especially in the seasons of disobedience. See this in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Israel's disobedient. God says, no, you're agapetos. You're beloved, and I'm faithful. I see you for who you are. And ultimately, it becomes this way in which Israel can declare their alle- or God's uh, allegiance to them and, and say, saying like in Psalm 60, God, deliver us from judgment because we are your beloved. They get it, and then they're able to claim God's deliverance. So God's declaring this over his people throughout their history, and in doing so, because of who they are, not what they do or don't do, they have this unique relationship with God. And, and, and God says, I will, I will do for you what's in my character to do because, because I see you, I love you, I see you as you are. Now here's the thing. God is doing the same thing with Jesus in his baptism. Before he does anything, like I said, he's declaring identity, he's forming his identity, Jesus' identity. He's giving Jesus the setting, this, this mirror, so that Jesus can see the Father as the Father is and begin to see himself as he is. And that allows him to rest, allows him to, to claim his path and say, I'm going to go forward in this despite the fact that I know I'm going to meet lots of opposition. I'm going to die. I'm going to move in this, this path as one greatly loved by God. And, and here's the beautiful thing, back to Song of Solomon. That which is true of Jesus and declared over Israel is true of the man and the woman in this story and is true of every one of you. Uh, so verse 1, 2, and 3, and then nearly 30 times in this book, it's, it's over and over and over again. This man is declared as beloved, 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 beloved. Why do you think she keeps calling him that? And then, in a, a sort of synonym way, he says, you're beautiful, you're lovely, you're blessed. Like he uses synonyms for the word, not the exact word. But over and over again, they are speaking to each other in this way. And sometimes that just seems like a term of endearment for us or like a title. Paul calls the church the beloved, people of God. Seems like a title. But really, I think it's way more than that. So Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, says this, that living in the awareness of our belovedness is this axis around which the Christian life revolves. And he goes on and says, being the beloved as our identity is the core of our existence. It's not merely a thought. It's not a lofty thought. It's not an inspiring idea. It's not a name among many names. It's not a title you're given. It's the name by which God knows you and the way in which God relates to you. That's how God sees you. And, and so being that beloved, it, the setting in which you're in, the thing that's identical about you, you need to know that. So that as you face circumstances, you can face them. You can walk in those with, with confidence, courage, strength, which has these huge profound implications for our lives. Let's give you a few. Because I'm beloved, uh, just getting real practical, it means I'm known. I'm known by God, I'm known by you, and this creates a context for relationship to happen. It's not just head knowledge. Knowledge in the Bible is always about relationship. Because I'm beloved, it means I'm known. The ability to be known here by, by all y'all, by God. This is crazy. But I'm known now. I'm not, I'm not just a one individual person, uh, just uh, anonymous. I'm known by you. I'm accepted. Here's the second thing. This is why God declares through Peter in 1 Peter 2, he says this, once you were not a people, but now you're a people. And I love the message translation of this. He says, you are, you are once chosen by God, 
Think of this for us as a, as a church. You are chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be holy people, God's instruments to do his work, and to speak out for him, to tell others day and night what difference he's made in your life. You're, you're accepted, you're chosen. You've been given a, a place, uh, you've been made something from nothing. We're people. Which means, here's the third thing, that we have value. So we're known, we're accepted, but we have value. We're, we have a significance way beyond our accomplishments, Monday to Friday, uh, our paychecks, the degrees we get on, that hang on our walls, way beyond that. We have value in the kingdom of God. And, and God is saying, I, want, I have something for you. I want you to live into. It also means <laughs> responsibilities. So we're sitting around this week, Elizabeth and I, and talking about what it means to be part of a family. And the kids came up with some really interesting things. Like, it means we have, like, a name, you know, family name, Brace family. It means we, we, we get to do things together, you know. One thing they didn't come up with, well, they did, but it was like they were really struggling. We have responsibilities. Like, we do chores, clean up after dinner, we do our homework, dad and mom go to work, bring home paychecks so we can support the family, pay for our mortgage, we have responsibilities. And that's kind of what it means to be part of the family of God. This is why we celebrated our volunteers. And why I'm not ashamed to say, I want all of you to be a part of it because you're part of the family here. It's a family. We clean up after each other. We help each other out. We do things for each other. That's why we do it. Uh, and finally, you know, it means we have common core values and a common vision. You often have heard me say this, that my definition of church, if I were to give you a, like a little phrase that goes on a t-shirt, is God's family of faith on mission. I might even just say we're God's beloved family. Like you might just put Bethany Northeast beloved family. You know, like we're on a mission together for God. And that's because we have common values and common vision. That's what it means to belong to God. That's who we are at our core. In other words, we, d- we don't just come to church, like I said earlier, but we're, being, we're becoming the church. And we become the church, here's the key, by, by understanding that we belong to God. That's where it all, that's the axis around our li- that our lives revolve around. So here's how I want to conclude. Just get real practical with us. And I want to invite our worship leaders up right now to help us conclude. Um, Brennan Manning, I already mentioned him. I've been rereading this book. Uh, he died a few years ago, and he was one of the first authors I read. as a, uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel was like the first book I read as a young Christian in college. And uh, didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. And so I'm rereading some of his stuff now just He's just rich, and he has this book called The Wisdom of Tenderness, and uh, it's just this beautiful book about the love of God, and he writes about, he writes this word of exhort, or about this word of exhortation he gave to this 78-year-old nun in this book. It's a great story. She um, was just suffering from this painful secret from her past that she couldn't tell anybody about, just feeling a lot of self-hatred and shame, and so he recognized in this conversation he had with her, her need to be connected to God, that, that confessing to him, that connection wasn't going to serve her well if she didn't understand her connection to God, and he calls God Abba, Father. So here's his words. He says to this nun, Sister, would you be willing to go off to this quiet place every morning for the next month, take a month, sit down in a chair, close your eyes, upturn your palms, and pray this one phrase over and over and over again, Abba, I belong to you. And so she looks at him, and she's skeptical, and he, she doesn't, he's not 
sure she's really getting it. So he goes on. He says, it's a prayer of exactly seven syllables. Seven syllables. Abba, Abba, I belong to you. And, and, and that creates this perfect rhythm of our breathing. It mirrors our breathing. So inhale, Abba. Try this with me. Inhale, Abba. And exhale, I belong to you. It just goes with your breathing. Abba, I belong to you. And so at the outset, he said to her that you're going to say this on your lips, but it's going to become unconscious competence for you. It's going to move from your head to your heart. It's going to push down in there, and you're going to begin to believe it. You believe things in your heart, he said, not in your head. It, and it'll become what the French call, uh, un, how do you say this, un cri de cour? Is that right, Kevin? It's almost right. <laughs> French speakers are like, oh, fingernails on a chalkboard. The translation of that is a heartfelt cry from the depth of your being, establishing who you are, why you're here, where you're going. Un cri de cour. So I, I read this story when I was a young Christian, like I said, and it changed my life, completely changed my life. Because that was one of the first prayers I prayed as a young believer. And I've been praying for 20 years now. Not every day. There's not every day that I feel like I need it, but many days. In that bike accident, Abba, I belong to you. Got in a car accident this week. <laughs> Somebody on my teaching team said, you should just stay home. I'm like, uh, yeah, I feel that way. Abba, I belong to you. I'm not this accident-prone, don't go driving or biking with me, but uh, I, feel, I was feeling very insecure and vulnerable. My, my daughter's in the car with me in this accident. It was a bad accident, and this prayer sustained me through my life. Abba, I belong to you. You are my identity, and my identity is beloved. That's it. And so recently, I've been get, begun to pray this prayer for, for people in my life, kind of a switch for me. You know, I shared last week that I'm having, my parents are kind of going through some illness, and, uh, I've, you know, you know my story at all. I've had a hard relationship with them. Abba, mom and dad belong to you. I've got some friends who I've been very close to, I haven't seen a lot of. Abba, Aaron belongs to you. Abba, Wake belongs to you. Uh, and maybe you have friends like that, that, you, that the friendship has grown, grown distant. Uh, or maybe it's over our political environment. Abba, President Trump belongs to you. I'm not kidding. Uh, maybe it's over uh, sort of just a, a difficult uh, kind of situation in our city. Abba, the homeless belong to you. You're driving down Aurora. Man, women caught in, in sex trafficking belong to you. You know, the, the, the country of Syria belongs to you, God. That's a powerful prayer if you begin to let it move from your head to your heart and overwhelm you with God's love for everyone. And so I want to invite you to try that this week, just that little seven-syllable prayer in your car, when you're at school teaching, on the bleachers when you're watching your kids and they're maybe missing every shot, <laughs> uh, on the chair with your palms up, inside, outside, wherever you are, simply, Abba, I belong to you, okay? So I'm going to pray that for us right now, and then we're going to uh, just worship together in response. So would you close your eyes, even if you'd be willing to put your palms up, and I'll just pray that over, pray that over us. Abba, we do thank you that uh, wisdom is revealed through your word. 
the wisdom to reflect on who you've created us to be and who you've created those around us to be. Forgive us, Baba, for forgetting that. We are sinful in that way. We live in unbelief. And so, Abba, we, we declare in belief this morning, we belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, my friends before me belong to you. Abba, Lake City and this, this city of Seattle belongs to you. Our children, our families, our aging parents, the people we work with that <laughs> challenge us, our neighbors that challenge us, they belong to you. God, we thank you that in belonging to each other and belonging to you, we discover who we are more deeply. So on that journey, God, would you open, the, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear more of your love for us, receive that in our, into our lives. And God, even as we respond in song this morning, would you allow us to respond from the heart? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.